We are celebrating today our second Sunday of Advent, and uh, just a reminder that we have, um, as we follow along in these four weeks, uh, a sort of progression of themes. We talked last week about hope. Today we light the candle of peace. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen. And we could probably all use a little peace, I'm guessing, this morning. Um, there's, a, there's a Hebrew phrase, um, a greeting that they'll use, where they will say, Mashlamsha. And it just is simply the question, how is your peace? And uh, let me just ask you that today. How, um, how is your peace? I think that um, if you're like me, it, it sort of comes and goes, right? That... Uh, all you have to do is sit down to the news and whoosh, there it goes. I did that this morning and, you know, hypersonic missiles from Russia and, you know, the seven steps that like the CIA recommends for traveling during the holidays. I'm like, oh, like danger everywhere, you know, and I think it's it's an interesting thing, this idea of peace when we tie that into a control that um, we realize pretty quickly how little of that we have. We live in a world that um, reminds us how vulnerable we are, how fragile things are. And when we come to a season like Advent and come to a, a theme like peace, we're reminded that that's rooted in something much different than how the world roots it. I love that as one of the, the names given to the prophesied Messiah in Isaiah is the Prince of Peace. I love how when the angels sing at the arrival of Jesus, they say, peace on earth. This idea of peace as, as the gift that Jesus has brought um, is clearly resounds throughout all of Scripture. And yet, as we look around, if you're like me, you wonder... Where is it? Where is this peace? And one of the things that I appreciate about Advent is it reminds us that we're still in this period of waiting. In fact, I read this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week where he was saying, celebrating Advent means learning how to wait. And the more comfortable we are, the harder it is to sort of live in this sense of anticipation. And so sometimes we've poured our whole lives into creating a comfortability only to find ourselves disconnected from this true source of peace. The advent, the message of this, the promise of this peace comes to those who are troubled, comes to those who are poor in spirit, comes to those who are imperfect. That this gift of peace comes into the world, this promise that all shall be made well. And so often we're looking for a temporary fix, aren't we? I, I love that verse in Jeremiah where he says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I think sometimes we can tend to do that, even create a sort of religion based around a sort of light version of peace a comfortability or the absence of strife or uh, the freedom from pain when in fact Jesus never says or sets the tone in such a way. 
He was incredibly honest about the difficulty that we would face in this world and that peace was something much greater than this, but something that would ultimately one day be fulfilled. And in his gospel in John in chapter 16, he lets the disciples know this and they really are struggling. They're ready for peace now. Like, let's take it by force. You know, Peter's like wearing a sword. They're like ready to claim this peace through a power or a violence a sense of their own control. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be gone for a while, that, that I'm here with you now, but I'm going to leave. And then one day we'll return. And they don't understand this. So in verse 19, they're kind of asking amongst themselves, like, what is he talking about? What is Jesus? I don't understand. And he says, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a while you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And that to me really is the message of Advent. It's this reminder that Christ has come, but then has left for a time. And we find ourselves in this season of waiting, but not waiting for no purpose or aim, that there's something happening, a new life that is forming during this time. And yes, there's pain. Yes, there's anguish. But it's, it's the kind of pain like childbirth, the beginning of a new life, forming and taking place, that that we're not just sitting here passively waiting, we're participating in a work that God is doing, bringing something new once again into the world. And in this time, a restoration that, as Jesus says, um, will be a permanent sense of joy, which is hard uh, for us to fathom. We get joy in such like tiny little snippets, don't we? Unlooked for these moments where we're surprised by it. But that one day that will be reality. Reality will be this permanence of joy. And Jesus tells them this and then explains why he's telling them such a thing. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I love that. To me that just sets like everything in perspective, doesn't it? You look at the news and go, oh my gosh, trouble, trouble abounding. And Jesus goes, I know, but I've told you these things so that you will have peace today. Not one day there will be peace. He says one day there will be this eternal joy, but today there is peace. And so to understand peace in light of this, you know, you really have to ask, okay, Jesus, what are you actually offering Clearly, it's not the absence of trouble, right? He's already said that's the context. And then in that comes peace. And this idea of taking heart to me, as he says that, take heart, I've overcome the world. To me, I think understanding peace really through that lens of taking heart is to understand it as be brave, take courage. That the peace that we have is this reassurance, this encouragement 
that Jesus gives us. And I love how that Latin word cur of heart is where we get the word courage. And we are encouraged in this way where he's saying, stay strong, even though it looks hard. The promise is secure. Be of good cheer, even some translations are. And I I think that understanding of peace is helpful to me because it makes it a choice. How do we respond when we look around and see the trouble in this world? Jesus says, be of good courage, be of good cheer. And this becomes a sort of strengthening to us. It gives us stability in this life. And I always think this, that we really as a church should be a model of that. And often we're not. Often we we tend to lose our composure, don't we? But this sort of non-anxious presence in the world, this stability, that should be where we live and where we abide. That's what Jesus invites us into. He's saying the outcome of this is secure. I, I always tease my wife because she gets a book and how many of you do this? She turns to the very end and reads the last page. Does anybody else do this? I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, I just need to know. I need to know how it ends and then I'm good, right? And, and I can appreciate that. In fact, I, if I'm confessing, I, I have this tendency like watching like British football. I, I love that the scores come in, you know, like we can watch the games later, but I like, well, every once in a while, I look back and go, okay, like one nil. Okay, I'll watch that game. Um, because the tension, right? Sometimes, especially in soccer, is anybody watching the World Cup? Um, right? It's like nil, nil, one, nil, like these scores, like you just go back and forth for, you know, what feels like an eternity, constant disappointments. How is this game going to turn around? It can flip in the last second. And I just want to know it's going to be okay. Right. And I realize that's like kind of unsportsmanlike, but, um, you know, I, I imagine the football game, which I missed last night um, up at the high school, was agonizing, right? A back and forth sort of thing. And I think sometimes we feel like this is life. Like we're up and then they're up and we're up and they're up. And what Jesus is saying is like, hey, read the back page of the book, right? This is going to be okay. And that to me right there, that is the thing that grounds us. And there's a word for that. It's gospel. It's, it's good news. And this is important. I, I like how um, N.T. Wright says, the gospel is not good advice. It's not like, here's how you live your life and all the things you do, and if you do all this, everything makes sense. It's like this good news. The gospel is basically this declaration of victory. In fact, the gospel is, is a phrase that would be used to describe somebody who was coming with news of the outcome of a battle. That that person, would, this runner would go forward, right? There's no internet. This person's got to carry this news of victory. And so these runners would go one after the other until they came back to the hometown with the declaration, with the gospel, good news. Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
and this Prince of Peace, this, this humble Savior that, that comes at Christmas in this posture of humility, right? Where everything looks like defeat. In fact, we watch Him defeated. And for three days, the, the disciples live in that place of brokenness, that this dream they had, that maybe God was this God of deep love and humility and sacrifice, that maybe that is the way that life really was at its essence, only to watch those dreams dashed and buried in the ground. And with that resurrection moment, you see this victory occur, this conquering of death, this final enemy in our way. And this declaration of good news, peace on earth, the final outcome is secure. I've heard it's the most quoted line in Christendom other than the Bible is a, a, a line that was spoken to, was it at Julian of Norwich where in a vision or in a dream, God said to her, all shall be well and all shall be well and every manner of thing shall be well. He said that to her when she was deathly ill, right? And in this word of encouragement, In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That gives us stability to stand in the midst of whatever circumstance, doesn't it? I love how when we talk about the armor of God that we put on, our feet are shod with the boots of the gospel of peace. And for us to be able to remain there in that place requires us orienting our life around this truth. As we lose heart, as we grow dismayed, as we become fearful, we come back to this truth. All shall be well. Every manner of thing shall be well. And this mission that Jesus came, this outcome, what does that mean? That God wins, that God is reigning, that what is that going to look like? And Jesus describes it so beautifully. In fact, at the beginning of his ministry, he reads these verses in the temple. And in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. To me, what a beautiful description of the way things will be. But Jesus didn't just forecast this. He didn't just predict it one day. He lived into it here on earth as he was here. That he embodied this good news. And so he went to the poor. He went to the brokenhearted. He went to the people that were the outcasts. The Jesus here and now brings peace into this world. It's it's not just a one-day thing that he's going, no, that, that is the mission. 
that as your feet are shod with the boots of the gospel of peace, you are a messenger now too. That becomes the invitation. That we're not just sitting back going, well, we know the game is going to end well, so let's just kick back, right? Everybody just relax and take it easy and, and just not worry about it. No, he's saying we participate with that in mind. Which is why he's saying, take heart, have courage. There's work to be done. That we are here to do the work of peace. And as it's described in Isaiah, this brings glory. And Jesus, this story is like the embodiment of of our mission as well. That Jesus comes in humility. That he lives this life that celebrates humanity. The dignity of every last person he sees. That he gives himself fully in sacrificial love for all. And in the end, he's triumphant. That the darkness ends up getting swallowed in the light. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58... Paul writes this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Those words from Hosea. And Paul goes on and says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And part of the peace is this realization that that as we walk through this world, as we face hardships, as we learn to love like Jesus did, that it all counts for something. It's It's glory. And that we have this invitation to participate in this glorious mission of peace. And this heavenly regime change that will one day take place is not here and now. It's um, we, we live in the time between the victory and the returning of the king. That one day that king comes back to his kingdom and until then it's like we're operating. Think of like Prince John versus King Richard, right? You've got like the king on his way back. But right now we live in this world of injustice. We live in this world where power still reigns, where self-centeredness is kind of the, the overall theme. And we don't trust those things. We don't trust political systems because we know it's operating under like the same old thing, that old regime. But what we do instead is operate our lives in light of this new king that's coming. And that takes courage. It's different. We stand for the poor. We move towards the oppressed. We go against the divisions that we see. We become the one that bridges those chasms, that moves in love towards those in need. This is what Jesus did over and over and over and then says, follow me, even to the point of taking up your cross. One of my favorite verses in Daniel is where he says, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above 
and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And to go this profound gift that God gives us of these lives being an opportunity to invest in things that really matter. To live lives of this kind of love causes us to shine. And I think our world is hungry for that. For the church to be that, to be that light of hope. This is what we're called to. And the gift that God gives us is this sense of comfort in the midst of the struggle. I was reading um, the, this guy like David White is this poet who has kind of written this, this book of, of basically definitions for, for different emotions. And, um, and he talks about solace. And I was thinking, oh, I think solace is a helpful word for us when we think about peace with what is available to us in the midst of this world. And he says, solace is not an evasion, nor a cure for our suffering, nor a made-up state of mind. Solace is a direct scene and participation, a celebration of the beautiful coming and going, appearance and disappearance, of which we have always been a part. Solace is not meant to be an answer, but an invitation through the door of pain and difficulty to the depth of suffering and simultaneous beauty in the world that the strategic mind by itself cannot grasp or make sense of. What does that mean? Solace, it's not in this evasion. It's not withdraw from the pain. It's a way of remaining into it, seeing correctly through it to understand the depth of the beauty And I think that's maybe what Daniel's getting at. And he's saying this posture of living into this peace and accepting this mission is this opportunity to live really beautiful lives. Lives that embody the heart of Christ. And I say that hopefully as an encouragement to you to go every single one of you as a part of that. That's not reserved for a chosen few. That's the mission of the church. To embody peace to the world to demonstrate love. A love that that doesn't just reach out to the poor, but goes to, as Jesus would say, goes out on the highways and the hedges and finds those people and invites them into the feast. This is how the kingdom of God works. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says it like this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, which unfortunately, is just the way life goes, right? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love this phrase, right? Paul, who's, you know, often writing from prison, often writing from some place of great hardship, is having trouble with his eyesight and having difficulty even being able to write these letters down. He has people helping him with it. And he's going, ah, this light and momentary affliction. Isn't that good? Right? There's perspective. Light and momentary compared to this eternal weight of glory. And as we think about Advent, as we think about coming in and remembering, it's this waiting, it's this remembering this victory, but this looking ahead for what is to come, setting our eyes on that, 
not just the reminder of the joy to come, but this reminder of glory. I love where he says weight of glory. And, and glory in the Hebrew like literally meant weight. They would use this word kavod, which meant a weightiness, a heaviness. That as we live into this world and we live this kind of life, this life poured out in love, there's a weight to it big enough for eternity. This from uh, C.S. Lewis. He says, This means that the continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. We've talked about this last week. We have this hope that like anchors us, that's like drawing us into the future. We have the assurance of that, but we also have in here the reminder to not lose sight of what is going on here. We don't ignore the sufferings of this world. We enter into it. But we enter into it in this state of solace and peace. That becomes this thing that roots us. And have you met anybody like that? Where you're like shocked at their composure. This deep sense of trust. And the invitation there is is to walk in this life close to our shepherd. To be continually drawing nourishment from God. This prince of peace that doesn't just leave us out there on our own, but walks with us, shepherds us in that journey. So while we look to the past, to the incarnation of Christ, we look to the future, to his one-day return, we also are rooted here in the present. Emmanuel, God with us. That we have that to draw on. That becomes our sustenance. Thinking about the table that we go to today is this reminder of daily bread that we draw from. I've been reading with some friends in a book group a, a book by Reinhold Niebuhr, and, um, and I'm struggling with it because he talks about sort of the inevitability of these systems lending them, moving towards injustice in this world. And, and I'm like one of those that just wants so badly to be optimistic, right? To say, no, 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 like the, the Margaret Mead, like a, a small group of dedicated people really can change the world, right? Isn't that what we're here to do? We're here to change the world. And Niebuhr goes, eh, it, it's, it's not going to pan out well. And, and the truth is, as I read it, I'm like, in one sense, he's probably right. I mean, Jesus even alludes to this in some places where he says, the poor will always be with you, right? That ultimately in this whole thing, that, that we don't get to fix this thing, that it will happen in a one-time future moment that occurs. But I think some of the solace that we get in this, some of the peace protects an optimism in us. It's one of the things that I honestly find so moving about Jesus when I think of his life and how he lived. That Jesus knew this sort of inevitability that would come. As he comes to Jerusalem, he knows the rejection that's going to take place. And he weeps, and then he goes into the city and he pleads, whoever is thirsty, come and drink. 
And to me, I think that is kind of our call, right? Is that we stand against the darkness, that we push back with a sort of optimism. That's part of the glory. We don't lose that. We don't become resigned to something. Part of the battle is to protect that heart. I think this is probably why I love uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol so much. That, that Dickens was just this crazy optimist that's going, hey, even Scrooge, take the most wretched person out there. And that person even, deep down at his core, is this thing worth saving, this spark of hope in him that could be redeemed. And I have this tendency in December, I, I love Chesterton writes these biographies of people that I think are so fantastic. Some people can't stand him because he's a pretty wordy guy and kind of goes off on tangents. But he wrote a great one on Dickens. And in this, he talks about Dickens as such a great man for this very sake of being an optimist. And I've got a few... Um, this is a sort of link of some of my greatest hits from this chapter. If If... If Chesterton had Twitter, he would have been perfect for it because he's like, gets these little bite-sized things. Like he says, the optimist is a better reformer than the pessimist and the man who believes life to be excellent is the man who alters it most. Isn't that good? Like that hopefulness, that's how you change the world. You come into it with a sense of positivity. He's going, that's, it's not the cynic, it's not the realist that's like calloused, it's the person who believes almost naively He says, one of the actual and certain consequences of the idea that all men are equal is immediately to produce very great men. I think this is what Jesus did, right? He sees in a bunch of misfits that you're going to be my guys, right? And they all slowly stumble their way into this. That Jesus sees the worth in all people, and it's not just some blindness in Jesus that's like naively hopeful. He sees that good and knows that by loving those people, you can draw them in to become the best version of themselves, to live in that bigger story. Chesterton says, one of the actual and certain consequences of the idea, oops, I already read, read that one. Next, there's a great man who makes every man feel small. But the real great man is the man who makes every man feel great. I love that one. Like what if those were the lives that we lived? Where the people around us felt their dignity and worth. I love that line from Oh Holy Night where it says he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That was the effect Jesus had, is when he loved these people, they felt this like inherent dignity and value. That becomes this sort of glorious opportunity that we have to live into this kingdom. And finally, the last one that I have for you, sorry, I'm bombarding you with some little Chesterton snippets here, but he says, a religion, again, is a thing by which, by its nature, does not think of men as more or less valuable but of men as all intensely and painfully valuable, a democracy of eternal danger. For religion, all men are equal, as all pennies are equal, because the only value in any of them is that they bear the image of the king. Isn't that good? All of us are this little penny with this like, this mark of the king on us. The greatness is not this thing to our own ego or value. It's being 
seen in what makes us truly great, this mark of our king. And we live in this kingdom. We live by these rules. And as we do, it's not to bring glory to ourselves, but it's to live into God's glory as peacemakers in this world. This becomes our call. We are not the ones that are out there swinging the sword of zeal like Peter. We are the ones making peace. The end of Christmas Carol. One of my favorite parts of it is, is Scrooge. You know, he has this radical transformation. And all of a sudden it's saying he like lived Christmas every day, right? But it talks about how there was people around him when they saw this transforma- transformation that, that laughed at him and that mocked him. It looked to them like foolishness. And I love how Dickens says his response was just indifference to it oblivious to all the societal critique. Dickens says his own heart laughed and that was quite enough for him. And I think that is the solace that we're promised. That is the peace. That the the hardships of this world just sort of roll off as we live in that place of closeness to God, as we live into that bringing of glory to this world. There's a joy to it. There's almost a mirth to it. And as we reflect on this theme of peace today, I want you to take this opportunity to invite that within yourself. How is your peace? And so often what we find in ourselves is a striving after um, our own privilege, our own comfort, our own power, our own thing that selfishly is gripping to something so tightly. And the work of peace is first this matter of inwardly letting go. Trusting God with those things that we're afraid to trust with. I like how Merton says, instead of loving what you think is peace, love other men and love God above all. Instead of hating the people you think are war makers, hate the appetites and the disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself, not in another. That's hard work, isn't it? But but this is part of the courage to let God come in and help us to give over these areas of ourself that clutch so tightly. But as we do, it gives freedom. It gives freedom to shine like Daniel describes that that deep wisdom begins to radiate God's glory. We make God's unconditional love visible to this world. Before we go to the Lord's table, I um, have just a couple questions for you to reflect on, going deeper, as per usual. The first, are there worries or fears or distractions in your life that are robbing you of God's peace? Scripture tells us that we should turn instead toward Jesus, the God of all comfort, and to cast our cares on him. Said, so take a moment and do that. <laughs> it, whatever that thing is, right? I think sometimes it's as simple as like going, ah, sorry, I picked that thing back up, right? Drop that thing down. Who in your life is struggling to find peace? And how can you bring comfort to them?
when Jesus says like that all we need to do is ask the God of comfort and he will comfort us in our affliction followed by so that we can comfort others in their affliction with the comfort that we have received. This is how it works. You receive this peace and then you give it. And three, is there anyone you find it difficult to love? Some of you probably have that problem. Others of you. Perfect. How can you go out of your way to give them peace? By doing this, you experience peace within your own heart. And that's the invitation in all of this. As we do this, we bring this kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And as we go to the Lord's table, let's just take a moment in our own hearts. A moment of confession. Our fears, our self-interest, our tendency to withhold from others. Jesus came that these sins or offenses could be forgiven and covered by grace. That our hearts can be forgiven, our sins removed, and our lives made clean.